Welcome to the Missing Chapter Podcast, where you will hear some of the least known, obscure, and entertaining stories the history textbooks left out. Starring Phil Horander and Phil Schaff. You know, some of the greatest discoveries and inventions came from someone who started with a question. How do we solve this problem? What would happen if we mixed this with that? How can we make this part of life easier for ordinary people? Many times it's just sheer curiosity that becomes the vehicle for discovery. Now, in the 1960s, I think it's safe to say that amidst the Cold War, the United States was developing and testing some pretty dangerous inventions. Sure, would there be positive outcomes? Of course. However, getting through the initial series of trial and error could be at the expense of human life. So the question at hand on any invention or discovery is, is it worth it? On today's episode of The Missing Chapter, we're going deeper, deep into the Earth's surface to uncover a 1960s project that used one of the most powerful weapons to ever exist, but for peaceful and scientific purposes. Is it successful in its mission? Or is this a really questionable idea with catastrophic consequences. In season two, episode 29, Happy Birthday to Who, I told the story behind the iconic song that has become synonymous with birthday celebrations around the world. And you've heard Phil and I wish our loved ones happy birthday on past episodes of The Missing Chapter. Now, we want to extend that on-air shout-out opportunity to you, our loyal listeners. Email us at themissingchapterpodcast at gmail.com or reach out to us on Facebook or Instagram and let us do the rest. Birthdays, anniversaries, graduations, what better way to celebrate life's accomplishments than with a personalized message on one of Spotify's most popular podcasts. So email us today at themissingchapterpodcast at gmail.com or message us on social media and let's get started. I'm Phil Schaff. And I'm Phil Horner, And we look forward to adding one of your celebrations to the History Podcast. It's another episode of the Missing Chapter Podcast. You are here with Phil Horner and Phil Schaff. Phil, we here at our podcast enjoy a good mystery. We do. In fact, we, we created not too long ago the Missing Chapter Mysteries. We have one of our own. Mm-hmm. Because we were gifted by a secret admirer two very nicely packaged Tanzanian coffees from the Atlas Coffee Club. And we're having one today. It's really good. It's it's not really dark, but it's dark enough. It almost reminds me of the dark Adirondack uh, that Utica gives us. But if you're one of our listeners, um, I don't know, maybe a coworker, and you you were nice enough to drop these two bags of coffee off for us. Thank you. Thank you. Yeah, yeah. absolutely. Um, so, Phil, speaking of previous episodes, mm-hmm. uh, just a few short months ago, we did an episode on Operation Paperclip. Uh, we've done episodes in the past, uh, one of them being Project Horizon, uh, which was episode, I uh, can't remember the, the number off the top of my head, but it was uh, Shooting Stars mm-hmm. was the episode name in season two. And now we're talking about a different project. Um, I don't know if you could say it's clandestine in nature. I, I don't think it is. I think it's it's maybe for scientific purposes, as the intro described, but very, very questionable. How anyone would say, I got an idea and let's give it a shot. I think this could be great for 
American society. Okay. And then spend millions to do it and to, to, you know, pursue it. I'm intrigued because it, you've, you've, like you've said, you, you've given us episodes like this in the past. Um, and they've been really random and obscure. Yeah. So I'm, I'm suspecting this one to be very much of the same. This is one of those uh, topics where you, you hear discussion of it and you, you hear it in passing. You're like, wait, what, what did they just say? Mm. So you do some research and you're like, there's no way that's true. 100% true. Okay. Here we go. Let's talk Project Gnome. Um, the intro talks about posing questions, right? To come up to, to come up with, you know, scientific inventive con conclusions. So the purpose of Project Gnome is to do the following. Use the heat from a nuclear explosion to convert water into steam for the production of electric power. Okay. Okay. So number one, we're looking for electric power. Got to think 1960s, um, you know, uh, People are, are, are moving home from, from wartime. Uh, you have, obviously, more vehicles on the road. Mm -hmm. So you're going to need uh, the need for power, the need for um, electric power. You're going to need the need to, for, for homes, um, heating your homes, and so forth. So they're looking for ways of extracting more power than, than the Earth is already giving them. Okay. So number one, electric power. Number two, purpose number two is explore the feasibility of recovering radioisotopes for scientific and industrial applications. We'll talk about what those radioisotopes do in just a couple minutes. The third purpose is to use the high flux of neutrons produced by this detonation for a variety of measurements that would contribute to scientific knowledge in general and to the biggest point here, to the reactor development program in particular. Wow. So we're, we're really exploring, hey, how does this nuclear idea develop into power? Not necessarily for wartime purposes, even though we're amidst the Cold War. Um, but it's really to see for peaceful applications for scientific discovery and maybe an additional, you know, helping out the, the regular old civilian with their heating purposes and electric needs. Right. Which you forget about because you think in the context of the Cold War, anything nuclear was was nuclear weapon related. Correct. Whereas that technology was extremely beneficial and useful. And you're exploring different areas that you could possibly benefit from. It. Correct. Interesting. So let's talk about this nuclear explosion. Um, yes, electric power, radioisotopes. And, and I mentioned earlier, the radioisotopes is actually used to scan for um, stress testing and welding. So if you're, you know, go to the body shop and you say, hey, my frame got bent in this accident. Would you mind welding it up? They would weld it, but then they would, you'd raise, they would use radioisotopes to scan the weld to make sure it was, uh, it was penetrated enough to make the, the welds nice and strong. So the radioisotopes are used for industrial purposes, amongst other things. Um, and of course, we're trying to figure out, you know, general discoveries for nuclear reactor development. So here's the question. How do we develop this energy? What kind of interactions do we need? Why, why underground? Mm -hmm. And could an atomic bomb, if exploded underground, melt underground salt deposits? Now, I pose a lot of questions here, so let me, let me see if I can unpack this a little bit. So the Atomic Energy Commission believed that it could. If it could, the hot salt would turn nearby water into steam, all right? And that could be piped into turbines, which would eventually generate electricity. So there's a lot of um, moving parts, per se. Mm -hmm. um, this was the idea, though. If we, if we find a salt mine, convert all of that heat from the, uh, the nuclear reaction, from that bomb, 
that he could eventually produce steam, which would power electricity. Okay. So in preparation for this, they do detonate a bomb near another salt mine. And they found that roughly one third of the energy in that melted rock was at temperatures above 2000 degrees Fahrenheit. So they said, hey, this is we're going to deem this successful. Um, They hoped that a nuclear detonation would yield even higher energy. So the question is, though, how could it be used for power? Right. And you got to think to yourself, well, if, if they if they figured out somehow that roughly one third of the energy in the melted rock was at temperatures above 2000 degrees Fahrenheit, mm-hmm. a nuclear weapon would, would produce way more. Way more. Okay. Right. Right. So the question is, how could it be used for power? If the detonation itself would, would generate high density, high pressure steam over the heated salt, it would work. The steam would be used to drive a steam or hot gas turbine, which would be attached to the electric generator. Excuse me. So now in cases of radioisotopes during the mid 20th century, they're used a lot in scientific experiments, medical diagnoses, uh, therapy, agriculture, and industrial production, of course, mentioning the welding process. But they needed a new way of capturing more because it wasn't just for welding. It's for all these other areas. So how do you produce more in an area of, of this time period, I guess you could say, that really technology hasn't caught up with the needs of the people. I get it. Okay. So previous underground nuclear tests had demonstrated that large quantities of radio uh, nucle- radionuclides excuse me, become entrapped in this molten rock formed by an underground nuclear explosion. So according to AtomicArchive.com, recovery of this process is difficult when the rock solidifies. So scientists need a new medium to transport all of these radionuclides. It was hoped that salt, which is water soluble, Hmm. could be processed to recover the radionuclides more cheaply and simply um, than insoluble low grade ore. So listen, very, very scientific terminology. When it boils down, pun intended, when it boils down to, to this, they figured by exploding a salt mine, you not only have the heat generated, but you also have the concoction of heat and salt that would then generate radioisotopes. So you're kind of killing two birds with one stone. And then on top of that, the third goal is already mixed in there. Even if these things fail, at least you're going to learn something about nuclear power. You know, and Phil, how often do you and I have the conversation that ends with, I just don't know how we get to this point. Like whose <laughs> mind works like this? Exactly. You can explain all of this to me. And then we find ourselves at the end of all that scientific jargon, we're going to blow up a salt mine. Mm-hmm. And this is what we expect each element of that explosion to do and to help us. And somebody at some point had to say, all right, let's give it a shot. It makes sense what you're telling me. We might as well try it. And then, yeah. And then say, hey, let's test it out. Right. And then say, hey, I got an idea. We have these nuclear devel- uh, nuclear uh, bombs that we developed in the Manhattan Project. Why don't you try one of those? Why, On our well. own soil. Ugh. Like who? I, that's the part where it's like you forget just how dangerously. I mean, what do you think? Radioactive. Yeah. But yeah. hey, I guess uh, the risk is is part of the discovery. So the gnome device, once approved, and it was was placed 1184 feet underground, embedded rock salt, at the end of a 1116 foot hooked tunnel, meant to be self sealing. So after the explosion, it seals itself. Okay. No worries about radiation seepage. What could possibly go wrong? (laughs) Right. A shaft 1,216 feet deep and 10 feet wide ended in the station room connected to the tunnel. 
The gnome was detonated at noon local time with a yield ready for this of 3.1 kilotons. That is an enormous, enormous explosion. So remember, you're trying to do this as a contained explosion. Unfortunately, as to be expected, gnome vented to the atmosphere. Mm. Uh, a cloud of steam started to appear at the top of the shaft two to three minutes after the detonation. Gray smoke, steam, uh, radioactivity emanated from the shaft opening about seven minutes after detonation. Radioactive material vents to the atmosphere about 340 meters southwest of ground zero. 11 minutes after shot time, the shaft and the ventilation lines were issuing large quantities of steam. 30 minutes after the detonation, large flow continued and began to decrease gradually. But the surface radioactivity resulted from the escape of steam also decayed rapidly, but we're talking like massive amounts of radiation. The following day, though, they start to see a slow process of radiation declining. But underground, underground recovery operations began six days after the detonation, and these operations were delayed in part because the closer they got to ground zero, the higher the radiation levels were uh, at the shaft opening. Okay, so uh, workers re-enter that cavity on May 17, 1962, and they found temperatures around 140 degrees Fahrenheit. Wow. But only small amounts of, of residual radiation. So the earlier intense radiation had colored the salt of the cavity. I, I Picturing this in my mind. Shades of blue, green, and violet. Now the question is, did it work? Right. Was right. this successful? Um, was there any damage done? And we'll talk about that more after the break. All right, welcome back, listeners. Uh, Phil, you left us with a very colorful uh, description of what these workers found when they descended into the cavity um, and, and saw what the nuclear device did to the salt. So immediately during the break, I, I did a little searching on Google, and I'm happy to report they did take pictures of this if you want to see what this looks like, but at least for the ones that I was able to locate, they're all black and white or almost like a sepia tone. Mm -hmm. So it doesn't really do it justice in terms of the blues. But I have to tell you that the cavern that this created is absolutely phenomenal. Yes. Like they, you can see one of the workers there. They have to point it out because he's so small with relation to what he's inside. That It's really, I would suggest, you know, if you're listening to this and you have access to your phone or your computer, look it up. Because I think after having... Phil, describe what happened exactly. Having the picture and the visual to go along with it does a lot of justice for it. And see, here's the here's the question I, I'm, I'm left with, because uh, at the end of the, the first segment here, we started to discuss, was it successful? I would say partially. Um, there have been some scientific discoveries from this. Uh, were they groundbreaking? Not necessarily. And I say that in the most figurative sense, because it was literally groundbreaking. But um how about the safety of it? Mm. It was supposed to be self-contained. It wasn't. It was released into the atmosphere. However, here's the here's the caveat. Of all the sources that I've looked at, and I'm hoping there's a listener out there, wherever you are, that knows a little bit more about this than I do. Email us about this because I couldn't find anywhere where someone was injured, hurt, killed, where there was cancer-causing um, you know, radiation right. from this. I, I couldn't find anything. However, I did stumble upon something, which I think is very interesting. Um, Project Gnome Nuclear Explosion Site is listed as a Department of Energy site, okay? And as of May 10th, 2015, there was compensation paid 
under parts B and E of, I don't know what this acronym means, but it included medical compensation for workers suffering from the effects of having worked at Project Gnome nuclear explosion site, and the payout is $3 million. So my question is, if I'm looking at the source right now and it says, if you or your parent worked at this or any other DOE facility and became ill, you may be entitled to compensation of up to $400,000 of medical benefits from the U.S. Department of Labor. Now, they wouldn't wouldn't put this out there if they didn't expect people to die from the project. Exactly. So I I think I'm I'm, I'm left maybe with a little bit of a mystery. Mm -hmm. Um, I don't have definitive answers for anybody who's, who's wanting to know, but... I'm I'm going under the assumption that yes, people were severely injured and impacted by this. And what state was this conducted in, Phil? New Mexico. New Mexico. Okay. Um, and there was another, you know, explosion um, test site done in New Mexico, but this is one of the major ones. And it, once again, it wasn't for any weaponry purposes; it was for scientific purposes. But you can visit the site now. Once again, I mean, we, we've shown the uh, Chernobyl Cafe, right? To our students, where you knew that's where you were going. Yeah. And and would you, if you got compensated thoroughly by the government to hold a cafe in Chernobyl, knowing that you're getting radiation, would you do it? Well, would you go back to a a nuclear explosion site knowing you might be getting trace amounts of radiation? I'm not comparing this to Chernobyl um, with the levels of radiation that have been exposed to, but I am saying you're probably going to be exposed to something. Mm -hmm. Um, But if you go there to, uh, New Mexico, at where this detonation took place, there is a plaque that reads, December 10th, 1961, the first nuclear detonation in the Plowshare program to develop peaceful uses for nuclear explosives was conducted below this spot at the depth of 1,216 feet in a stratum of rock salt. The explosive equivalent to 3,100 tons of TNT was detonated at the end of a horizontal passage heading from a vertical shaft located 1,116 feet southwest of this point among the many objectives was the production and recovery of useful radioactive isotopes, the study of heat recovery, and the conduct of neutron physics experiments, and the provision of seismic source for geophysical studies. There's also a second plaque that says no excavation and or drilling is permitted yeah. to penetrate Section 34, Township, et cetera, et cetera. So I think we'll leave the listeners with this. Maybe go check it out. If you want to go check it out, send us some pictures. We're curious. Um I think the mystery is left open. I also think that it maybe did not serve the full purpose. So if you ask me, hey, Phil, do you think Project Gnome was worth it all in all? I say the risk was certainly not worth the reward. Thank you for joining us. And until next time, I'm Phil Horander. And I'm Phil Schaff. Another chapter has been added to the history textbooks.